0: Please join me in prayer. O risen Christ, open us to the power of your resurrection as we hear it proclaimed anew this day, that we too might rise to new life in you. Amen. Our scripture reading this Easter morning is taken from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 16, verses 1 to 8. Receive the Gospel of the Lord. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might come and anoint him. Very early on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. They were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. Entering the tomb, They saw a young man sitting at the right, wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. And he said to them, Do not be amazed. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who has been crucified. He is risen. He is not here. Behold, here is the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. They went out. And fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is the gospel of the Lord. Thank you, Jenny.
1: I stepped into the hospital room. It was dimly lit, and there on the bed sat a mom. And a young dad, and the mother was cradling a lifeless baby, stillborn at nine months. There was a ball on the floor, and a cup of water that had assisted in the labor. I'd been praying for them all night because it was expected there had not been a heartbeat. And as they held that child, I grieved with them. It was heartbreaking. Death is cruel. Death the Bible calls an enemy, an invader, an opponent. And as they wept in silence over their child, their son, their firstborn son, what could be said? What words could be offered? There was nothing I could say as a pastor that could take any of the pain away. The early Christians believed there was one and only one who could speak to the cruelty and the evil that we know as death. We're going to read a piece of mail that was sent 2,000 years ago to a church in Macedonia in the north of Greece. We know it by the name of the first epistle to the Corinthians by St. Paul, himself a convert to Christ from Judaism. I'm going to read verses 17 to 25 if you want to follow along, we'll project it. He writes to them and says, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep, that's a euphemism for death, In Christ are lost. He says, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. But, he continues, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ, all will be made alive, but each in his own turn. Christ the firstfruits. And then, when He comes, those who belong to Him. And then the end will come when He hands over the kingdom of the God the Father after He has destroyed all dominion and authority and power. For He must reign until He has put all of His enemies under His feet. This is the word God through his Apostle Paul. And we see here in this passage wrestling with issues of death and resurrection an incredible human longing for something that seems scientifically impossible that those who die could come back to life again. Friends, is it even possible? I mean, our experience of death is 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 an experience of finality we don't see people they die and they stay dead and yet paul is actually upping the stakes on this question he's he's throwing all of his eggs into this one basket he says in verse 17 and then in verse 19 he says if christ hasn't been raised your faith is is futile your Fools to be here on Easter Sunday if it didn't actually happen. If it's just a fairy tale because we're going to die and we're going to rot and you won't be at your own funeral in a billion years from now when the stars have gone out, no one will ever know that humanity even existed. He says, if it's just for this life that we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all people it's a, it's a totally different way of, of making decisions about about religion, you know, because the way we in our culture have been trained to think about religion is if we, we hear something and we like it, we say, I believe that. And if we hear something we don't like it, we say, I don't believe that. Uh, and so we do that with, with the Bible. You know, if something in the Bible sounds nice, we're like, yeah, I believe that. If we don't like it, it's, it I don't believe that. And yet St. Paul, who wrote this, came to his religious convictions in a completely different way. He didn't like Christianity. Paul didn't like Jesus. Paul was offended by the early Christians. He was actively persecuting them. He hated the fact that, that, that they believed that Jesus rose from the dead. He hated the fact that they didn't obey the Jewish food laws. He hated the Christians for mixing men and women and people of different ethnicities and backgrounds together and turning them into some kind of new family. He hated the Christians for what they did. He hated Christianity and the faith in Jesus because of what it did with the Hebrew Scriptures. And then he saw the resurrected Jesus and he said, I hate this and I have to deal with it. And he dealt with it and he believed in Jesus, not because he liked it, but because he believed Jesus actually had been raised from death to life. It's a totally different way of making decisions based not on what our preference is, but on what we actually to believe to be true. So can an educated person actually believe that Jesus died and then three days later rose back, transformed, and alive, you know, and, and and science can't actually help us answer this question because science is is the investigation of repeatable events, and and the fact is that people die and they stay dead, uh, and so science is not a realm of inquiry that can help us answer the question of the possibility of resurrection. Rather, we have to turn to a different field of knowledge, the field that we call history. History is the study of non-repeatable events. You know, science can't prove. That Julius Caesar crossed the Rubicon uh, it 's not a repeatable event, but but historically, we can look at sources and, and draw conclusions and conclude historically that that actually did happen um, several decades ago a a Jewish scholar, Pinchas Lapid, looked at the question of the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. And, and Pinchas Lapid, uh, he was not a Jew for Jesus. He was a Jew for Judaism, and he died a Jew for Judaism. But he looked at this question, and, and he looked at how a belief in the resurrection of the dead was very widespread among uh, Jews in the first century, and, and Christianity was a Jewish movement. Uh, and yet, the view at the time was universally that resurrection would happen at the end of history. That that everybody would die and everybody would be raised from from death to life to stand before God for judgment. There was no concept of resurrection happening in the middle of history. And so it was unexpected. No one was expecting that. Not even the disciples. You know, the men had deserted after Jesus died. They all ran away. The women were the ones who had to then uh, uh, clothe and wash Jesus and prepare him for, for funeral. Uh, and, and 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 then he points out how there are some very uh, extreme, counterproductive, honest elements within the gospel accounts. For example, the first witnesses to the resurrected Jesus in the gospel accounts were women. And he, he posits that if the early Christians were making up this story, they would not have made the, the first witnesses of the resurrected Jesus women. Why not? Because women could not testify under Roman law, women could not testify in court under Jewish law. They were considered at best half a witness because women were viewed as unreliable. It was an intensely misogynistic culture, uh, and 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 so that he says it, it had to have happened because they would not have made it up and put women as the witnesses because it it loses its credibility. Then he puts looks at how Jesus on the cross dies, not a heroic death as one would expect in making this up, but rather he dies with a whimper, saying that God had forsaken him, crying out in Aramaic, Elohi, Elohi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken or rejected me? The early Christians wouldn't have made up a story of of, of their savior and their king and their leader being rejected by God and then buried with, with women as the first witnesses. And then you look at how, how the disciples, the apostles, the, the leaders of the new church, when the Bible was being written, how they were portrayed in the gospel accounts as total idiots. Jesus. Tells St. Peter, get behind me, Satan. You know, if, if the Pope wants to create a new religion, he's not gonna have the leader of the religion call him the devil. And so, so Pinchus, Pinchus Lapid, you know, he, he, this Jewish, he, he concludes, that it would have taken a larger miracle to explain the faith and confidence of the early Christians than a resurrection from the dead. Historically, it had to have happened. It otherwise would have never been recorded the way it is recorded. Is it possible? I think historically we've got a very strong case for the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. Can you imagine a world in which resurrection is actually a possibility? You know, in our busyness with our apps and our constant overscheduled life, and constantly entertaining ourselves, we we often, I think, miss the real wonder. And beauty of the universe in which we live. I saw it yesterday at the petting zoo outside as I watched small children, wide-eyed wonders, rushing to hold and touch these little baby goat, baby lambs and goat, and, and we had a llama and a baby horse and bunnies and those poor little yellow ducks that just got manhandled and dropped and stepped on, and I, I was, I was guard of the ducks for the last half but but it was the wonder of these children at the beauty of god's creation drawn to it have you lost that wonder have you lost that incredible sense that you're walking around in a universe that is filled with magic and mystery and beauty the fingerprints of god all around us now can you imagine such a universe Uh, you know brett brett baddorf um lives uh, lives in Antarctica. Not many people live in Antarctica. He actually lives at the the Amundsen-Scott South Pole Station on the South Pole. Literally, like the pole sticking up, you know, with a, you know, yeah, barber's pole. Uh, he's right there. Uh, not the side with S- Santa, um, but South Pole. Uh, he writes this. He says, my best moments during my winters in Antarctica. That's when it's completely blackout are spent walking outside where isolation and darkness meet. I pause to reflect on God's vast infinity, gazing at a crystal clear view of, of the Milky Way. We've got a photo of that, uh, what that looks like from the South Pole Station. Seeing constellations that are invisible back home. He writes, stepping outside in the 90 degree below zero Fahrenheit weather with an added 30 degree wind chill is daunting. But he writes, every moment in the wild, I feel God's overwhelming presence as I'm made aware of His transcendence. I enjoy learning about the sciences that explore the vastness of space. But the more I learn the more I see the intricate hand of God weaving the tapestry of the sky. One person on the station told me it was absurd amid all this infinite wonder to believe in a God who would be bothered with such an inconsequential planet, let alone the individual people on it. And yet, gazing into the unbridled magnificence of our galaxy, I felt anything but irrelevant to God. Quite the opposite. I felt God's tender and personal grasp. got a video. Can you play that video? He says, the most unique of my outdoor experiences at the South Pole has been standing beneath the aurora australis. Even with a scientific understanding of what causes this phenomena, it is easy to stand in awe of a creator who moves beyond simple function and into incredible beauty. Lindsay Whaley a professor of mathematics and linguistics at Dartmouth writes billions of people around the world celebrate Jesus resurrection but can we seriously take it at face value or or is christianity as as cosmologist stephen hawking once put it a fairy story for people who are afraid of the dark Resurrection is a, a concept, even intellectually responsible, is it even responsible in the 21st century to believe? We, we know death equals decomposition, which equals dirt. Again, Stephen Hawking writes, I regard the brain as a computer which will stop working when its components fail, and there is no heaven or afterlife for broken down computers. But what if the wonder and beauty of the cosmos are in fact a sign telling us that there is more going on, that we are in a universe where resurrection is possible because there's a universe with a God. Whaley continues, For me, the resurrection requires just one external hypothesis, that there is a God who can perform miracles. In a Western university setting, belief in God can seem terribly far-fetched, let alone belief in the resurrection. But... Are we ready to ask ourselves whether we can really live as if death is final? You know, can we really live as, as, as if, as if we're just random and meaningless, a blip in history with no true story, no ultimate significance? Can we really live as if we're just gnats that get squashed underfoot, a collection of atoms whizzing about in a random way and that happen to develop and combine in such a way as to have sentience? Can you live as if there's no God? to say what is right and and wrong there's no such thing as evil there's no such thing as goodness because there's no standard which can dictate what goodness actually is can you live as if what the nazis did in the 1940s was meaningless and not wrong can you live as if it's not wrong for islamic state to throw gay men off the top of tall buildings as a spectacle for their friends and family can you live as if american chattel slavery and racism was not evil can you live as if the Orlando club bombing was okay? Can you really live in a universe without a moral order? Can you live as if there's no significance to it? Reading your child a bedtime story or holding the hand of a grandmother as she passes from this life. I've known lots of atheist friends. I grew up atheist. My father, I believe to this day, remains there. And I've never met an atheist who can live as if there is no God. I see... In, the atheists I know, integrity, concern for human suffering, but it's borrowed capital intellectually. Living as if human life really were sacred, as if, as if truth really were better than deception, as if love really were better than hate, as if there really is some ultimate meaning or purpose, as if we all do have significance, as if there really is a God behind all of this. You can't live as if it's meaningless, friends. What if it's all true? Can you imagine such a world At a 2016 Isaac Asimov Memorial debate, the American Museum of Natural History, the question arose of whether or not this universe is a simulation. Astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson, who was hosting the debate, said that he thinks the likelihood of the universe being a simulation may be, quote, very high. He says he wouldn't be surprised if we were to find out somehow that someone else is responsible for our universe. Tyson uses a thought experiment to imagine a life form that's that's as much smarter as as us than than we are to dogs or chimps or terrestrial mammals. says, what would that look like to them? What would we look like? We would be drooling, blithering idiots in their presence. Whatever that being is, it very well might be able to create a simulation of a universe. And Tyson goes on to say, and if that is the case, it is easy for me to imagine that Everything in our lives is just a creation of some other entity. He continues, I'm saying the day we learn that it's true, I will be the only one in the room saying I'm not surprised. Friends, we've been saying it's true for thousands of years. But it's not a simulation, it's a reality. If you can see the evidence in this universe that it's a simulation run by an unimaginably intelligent outside intelligence is the thought of God so out, outlandish? And would such a God not be able to resurrect us? I mean, the universe with all its vast immensity, 14 billion years ago, space and time exploded into existence. Before that, there was nothing. You know, you think of nothing for a minute. Picture nothing in your mind. Uh, now, whatever you're picturing, that's actually something. You need to get rid of that. Um, Jonathan Edwards said, says nothing is what sleeping rocks dream of. Uh, you know there are 10 billion galaxies in the observable universe something like a billion trillion stars in the observable universe and the bible says that this intelligence this outside intelligence is sustaining that moment by moment but all of that came from nothing You, you could talk about you know bubble universes and whatnot but the research is pointing to the fact that that time itself had a beginning and the universe has a limit that is expanding outward you know this is the kind of God, a God this big, this massive, then do you think that the death of a human being is really such an obstacle to such a God, should he choose to love us? What if we are computers? What if our brains are computers that do ultimately break down? But what if our creator is able to take your software and all of your data and upload you to the cloud as your computer crashes? What if he is able to then download you at some future point into a new model, Humanity 2.0? Friends, that's what we're talking about when we talk about death and resurrection, being uploaded to the cloud, to a heaven, to a paradise, various language in the Bible. Uh, perhaps Hawking is right about the computer, but perhaps he's wrong about the finality can a soul, can personhood exist apart from the brain? Um, strange things have been happening. Um, in the medical literature, There's, there are increasing accounts that, that fail to fit neatly with the prevailing assumption that the mind or soul is merely a working of the brain and nothing more. Uh, it's something that happened in my own family. We got another photo. This is my grandma. Um, grandma Johnson, Dorothy Johnson, um, she was a pistol. Uh, but she's the one who prayed me into the kingdom, uh, when, uh, uh, when, when she saw my family. Um, my grandma had suffered years of dementia. And before her death, she had gotten to that point. Some of you have watched this. Some of you have gone through this. Some of you have experienced it in your own family of watching your loved one. And there's less and less of her every day, every month, every year. And she finally got to that point where she couldn't talk. She couldn't recognize anybody. She didn't know who her own daughter was. And then one day, my Aunt Sandy got a phone call from the nursing home saying, something's happened with your mom. You need to come over now. What's happened to my mom? Did she die? No, no. It Just come over right now. And she got there, and she walked into the room, and my grandmother was sitting up, fully alert, saying, Well, hi, Sandy, how are you? And she conversed with her for 15 minutes as if nothing had ever happened. She was perfectly normal. My aunt says at that moment she could remember the name of every single dog she had ever had in 80 years, and she had a lot of dogs over 80 years. And my aunt then ran out to the car to get something. As soon as she got to the car, her phone rang, and it was inside the nursing home. They said, Your mom just died a minute ago. My aunt said it's as if she was being healed as her brain finally died and she was being released. Professor Alexander uh, Bethany teaches cognitive science at the University of Vienna. He's doing a large-scale study on this phenomenon, the first of its kind, on terminal lucidity. In one account from his database, an elderly woman with Alzheimer's never speaks no longer recognizes her loved ones when they come to visit, and shows no expression. By the looks of her, she's a human vegetable. She's been this way for over a year. Her brain's cerebral cortex and hippocampus, which are necessary for memory, for thought, for language, normal consciousness, has shrunken severely. Her brain bears very little resemblance to anything that would be healthy. And yet something happens. As reported by both the nursing staff and her care unit and her family members, Unexpectedly, she sits up in bed. Then she swings her feet around and stands up. Her face is no longer blank, no longer motionless. She walks over to the telephone. How, with very little brain matter, does she know it's a telephone? She dials a phone number from memory. How does she still have a memory? She calls up her daughter and addresses her by name. She tells her daughter how glad she is to speak with her. Honey, I just want to thank you for everything. You have been so wonderful. And then she has a conversation with her grandchildren. She exchanges kindness and warmth. She says, I love you so much, and I will always love you. Don't forget me. I love you. Your grandma loves you. She says farewell. She goes back to bed, and shortly thereafter, she dies. Terminal lucidity a review and a case collection by Michael Naum and Bruce Grayson of the Division of Perceptual Studies, Department of Psychiatry and Neurobehavioral Sciences at the University of Virginia et al., Archives of Gerontology and Geriatrics, Volume 30, 2011. It's where I get all my best stories. (laughs) Haig, in 2007, reported the case of a young man who was dying of, of metastatic lung cancer that had spread to his brain. And toward the end of his life, a brain scan showed little brain tissue left because the expanding tumor had not just pushed out the brain matter, but actually destroyed it and replaced it. He had a tumor instead of a brain. He had lost all ability to speak, all ability to move. And according to a nurse and his wife, one hour before he died, he woke up and said goodbye to his family, spoke with them for about five minutes, then lost consciousness again and died. This man had very little brain left. Yet one hour before his death, with no brain, in the midst of the dying process, he somehow functioned and communicated completely normally for five minutes. It's as if his his mind were separating from his brain, as if the mind had been there all along, but it had been encumbered because it had a defective processor. It had a broken down computer, but the software was still there. The data was still there. It was just waiting for release from the defective computer that is our dying bodies. It's as if death is not the end, but body and soul intended to be in union can separate and continue separately. Friends, none of this fits with scientific materialism. In Shakespeare's words of Hamlet, there are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. There's reason historically to believe in Jesus, that he died and that he rose. The cosmos suggests that God could accomplish such a feat. Uh, there are these cases that suggest the soul continues. If these things are true, that Jesus rose from the dead, then that's a game changer, friends, because a resurrection changes everything. How does it change everything? Well, for one thing, it gives us a different horizon. To have our software uploaded to the creator's mainframe is one thing, but if the resurrection spoken of here in this passage is coming, then it means we continue. Uh, but but there's there's a horizon beyond that when when we get downloaded into a new model, when our bodies are restored and made whole, when the dead rise from their graves alive and transformed as Jesus was transformed. It means Christ's victory over 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 everything and over even death itself. He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be defeated, Paul writes, is death. Here we see Jesus as a victor over death. You know, when you look at the work of Jesus Christ, There are different facets you can look at it from. From one angle, you see as an atoning sacrifice where Jesus takes the blame for us so that we can get blessed instead of Him. From another angle, the gospel is a story of a father who takes in and adopts the wayward into his family making us the people of God. But from another angle, the gospel is about Jesus who comes when we're defenseless and He goes to war against our enemy death and He fights it and He fights it to the very end and when Death thinks it has accomplished its victory. Jesus bursts forth from death, putting an end the death of death and the death of Jesus Christ. And that means that Jesus is coming again. Paul says that these are our first fruits of of those who have fallen asleep, and, and that that means that there's something bigger coming. You know, when I it's a, it's an. A It's a farming analogy, and there aren't a lot of farmers in this room right now. Maybe some of you were raised on a farm, but but if you can think of first fruits and what that means, if you can imagine me about three weeks ago, when winter had dragged on and on and on, and every tree was bare, and the ground was brown, and the sky was gray, and there was no sunlight, and it was freezing cold, and I was running the heat constantly, I looked out my window, and it's just pure death. It's a dead landscape. It's it's apocalyptic. And then... I see on the magnolia tree outside my window one little tiny bud popping out of a bare branch and my heart lit up because I saw that and I saw it and I said oh I know what's coming next that's Jesus' resurrection because what happens then to his universe is it bursts forth at the end of history into life blossoming Coming to life. Jesus, who, who on the cross destroyed the ruler of this world, judged Him and drove Him out. Jesus, before whom every knee will bow. God the Son, whose enemies are a footstool for His feet. Jesus, who ushers in a kingdom, the victory of God and the triumph over darkness. In His resurrection, Jesus defeated and overthrew the dominion of the evil one, sin, sickness, death, and hell. The reason the Son of God appeared, 1 John 3, was to destroy the works of the devil. Hebrews 2, therefore the children share in the flesh and blood. So Jesus likewise partook the same things that through death He might destroy the one who has the power of death. Acts 2, God raised Jesus up again, putting an end to the agony of death because it was impossible for Jesus to be held in its power. Christus victor, Jesus the conqueror, Jesus the death destroyer. It's the victory of God. The renewal of all things is coming, friends. God's gonna put everything under his feet. It's a cosmic salvation and a day is going to come when there will be no more mourning and no more tears and no more sorrow and no more death. And a voice of Jesus will come from the throne and say, behold, I make all things new. What's the trajectory of your life? You start really little. You come out of the womb. You wear some diapers you gain some skills some words some language some walking first day of school comes next you're progressing perhaps to college grad school terminal degree maybe marriage or maybe you got the degree children somewhere perhaps i don't know where at some point it happens you crest the hill i'm not looking at anyone in particular you crest the hill the progress stops. Things begin to decline. Your hair starts to go thin. It starts to turn gray. You can fight it, but you can't fight it forever. You get out of a chair. You can't get out of your pew without vocalizing it. You'll know you've crested if you vocalize when you get up from that pew. Your body starts to lose its shape. Your systems start having problems. Things start breaking down. Next thing you know, you're wearing diapers again, and then you're dead. But if Jesus was dead and came back to life, and said He was the first fruits, the sign of what's to come. If Jesus rose, then that means your best years are yet to come. It means this is all prelude. We're we're not even in chapter 1 of the book yet. We're still in the foreword. The best is yet to come because the story continues. It lays before us a future hope of resurrection beyond this life when everything will be made right. visiting those parents and their dead son in that hospital room. I took that little baby boy, his skin darkened, bruised, lifeless, holding a dead child in a hospital, grieving with a mom and a dad. I anointed that little baby boy's head with oil in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. I prayed over that little boy, not knowing why this had to happen, not having any words to offer, but I committed him to God the Father in the name of Jesus Christ. And I spoke the resurrection promise from John's gospel, that tiny baby, lifeless in my arms. Friends, that baby was not meaningless. That baby was not Uh, without significance, Jesus says that baby boy is going to come alive again. His death was a sacrilege. It's not the way the world was meant to be. Death, a cruel invader, but Jesus died and rose for that little boy. And Jesus says that little baby boy is going to live again. He is going to climb rocks with his dad. He's going to be calling his mom out onto the dance floor. He's going to be throwing and pitching balls. He is going to be loved and, and, and give love. He is going to be alive and fully human. There's little that I can say in the face of the tragedy and evil that is death but there is one who can and does speak into it. He says in the book of Revelation, I am the living one. I was dead and now I am alive and I hold the key to death. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, he shall live forever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, You are the one who died and rose and so we worship you and declare you our great hero this morning lord we consecrate to you the elements on this table lord that you would preach good news to us who are poor to us who are dying for we are still in the land of the dying lord but as you nurse us and walk with us we will soon be in the land of the living and we know that when we proclaim oh when we, we eat this meal together we proclaim your death until you come again And we look for that day, Lord Jesus. You are our only hope in life and in death. Because you are the one who conquered our great enemy. We give you thanks. Amen.